this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Squarespace recently launched the latest version of their platform, Squarespace 7, which has a completely redesigned interface, integrations with Getty Images and Google Apps, 15 new templates, and an incredible feature called Cover Pages. Try the new Squarespace with a free trial at squarespace.com and enter offer code RIOT at checkout to get 10% off. Squarespace. Start here. Go anywhere. This is the Book Riot Podcast, a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 116. We're recording on Friday, July 24th. I'm Rebecca Shinsky here with Jeff O'Neill, and we're coming to you from bookriot.com. Well, here we are in the middle of summer, and unfortunately, we have to lead off with bad news. It's the doggiest of dog days. Doggiest of dog days. Uh, uh, sad to report, as many of you maybe read or heard about last week, that Eel Doctorow, um, the great American novelist, uh, well, not the great, but a great American novelist, passed away this week at the age of 84. Um, best known for his works of historical fiction, and, and really from like the he, he covered the mid-18th century to the, well, I guess into the mid-20th century, not, 18, not sorry, mid-18th century, but the 1700s, mid-19th century to the mid-20th century, kind of a hundred-year span where he, you know, got in, he, he unlike... Um, a lot of writers, he didn't have a particular style. He wasn't really known for his style. Um, it would it'd be very difficult, I think, for most of us who aren't expert in him, and maybe probably those who are expert can recognize some tics uh, or, or stylistic parts of, of Doctorow's um, work. But really what he was so good at is creating world, historical worlds and doing the research, um, giving us vibrant characters, um, real-life characters, that is. He would make fictional versions of people that really existed, and really make the historical moment feel like a novel and give it a beginning and middle of end. That's sometimes hard to do in historical fiction unless you're ending, unless you're doing like a biography where someone is born and something happens or they died or it's war, things of that nature. He didn't do stuff like that. Like he wrote – it's interesting that the, the people he picked to write historical fiction about – you know, you wouldn't really necessarily think of them as like, boy, that'd make a great story. Like, for example, we were talking before the show, the one Rebecca's read is Homer and Langley, which is about a couple of hoarder shut-in brothers. Yeah, uh, the, the Colliers. Colli the Collier brothers in um, uh, Upper Manhattan in New York who were the heirs of a great family. I don't know if it was a fortune, but a great house up in the 130th, 145th Street mm -hmm. or something like that up in Harlem. Big old rambling mansion. Yeah, that they owned and basically lived together and died there in the in the room surrounded it's, by newspapers like, and... Surrounded by, by stacks and stacks of newspapers and one of them was perpetually like writing a newspaper on yeah. his typewriter. Um, piles of books and they would hold basically rent parties. People would come to yes. dances in the house. And that was it the was, earlier days before yeah, they really it was, got crazy. It was fascinating. Um, and I didn't know that it was based on 
real people until yeah. after I read it, which then that always blows my mind a little bit. Uh, I really, really loved it. I'm I'm sad that it's the only Doctor O that I've read. Um, Ragtime, I know, you know, is one of his most famous, if not the most famous of his novels. It's one of Bob's favorite books. I've been meaning to read it forever. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, just as an example, like, so the march uh, is about Sherman's march into Georgia, and it follows sort of different people uh, along the march. Um not not in least with General Sherman, but, you know, as he was walking, you know, marching his army through the south and burning crops and, you know, doing the famous Sherman's knots of like wrapping railroad ties around trees so they were unusable. You know, he follows that there was a photographer that followed along, which is one of the early Civil War photographers talking about, you know, basically there are a lot of displaced people just sort of started following the army along because there's like food and stuff going on and super interesting there. Uh, Let's see. Also, um, the world's fair, uh, 1985, uh, the most famous I think is ragtime, uh, his 1975 novel. That's about the United States from 1900 until the beginning of world war one. So it it has kind of fictional and historical figures, um, and it's about this part of American history, which, you know, it's interesting that that 1900 and 1917, you know, we kind of do, we kind of, when we're in our history book version of American history, right, it's, you know, Civil War, Reconstruction, fast forward to World War One, mm-hmm. right? And so one thing that's great about Ragtime is you get the look at turn of the century America. You know, he, he takes art, uh, McKim, uh, Stanford White, uh, and Charles McKim, I think I've got those names right. They're, they were famous architects of the day, and their work is all over New York City. Um, one of my alma maters, Columbia University, is um, by their firm, McKim, Mead, and White. Um, very influential. Not not names a lot of people know now, but have been very his, uh, influential over time. And that's I think that's one of the great services Dr. O did. The books themselves are great reads on their own, even if they weren't sort of historical based on fact. Um, they're great reads on their own, but they also give you these windows onto periods of American history, especially, again, this 100-year period between about 1865 and about 1950. I, I think all of them uh, are set in the, yeah, that time period. I, um, maybe only, let's see, when was the Rosenberg trial? Because one of his novels is about the Rosenbergs. I can't remember, I can't remember the, the Book of Daniel is about Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, who were, you know, basically uh, uh, traitors, and they were uh, convicted of being spies. Um, so the 50s, yeah, 1953 mm-hmm. is when they were executed. Um, so uh, it's it's a sad loss. You know, and also another interesting thing, like you could count on him every four to six years, it'd be another novel. No, no later than six, no earlier than four. That's just how long it took him. Like from 1965, you can look at this, his work and that's how long he, to do the research and writing. And like you could, I, I started reading him, I guess when I was a teenager and I looked at the biography, uh, the bibliography because he's one of those authors I've read the whole corpus and you could see here it is, here it is. And I'd start paying attention. Like it's about time for another doctoral novel. It seems like one of the unsung or under discussed great American writers. I think writers, so. Especially for how prolific. Yeah. Every time that I've looked at how many books he's written and this week looking at reading the obituaries and like reading his Wikipedia page, it's really remarkable that like how long he sustained producing yep. a book every years, three or basically. four years. And just the breadth of historical moments that he studied and wrote about. It's really fascinating. Really interesting. And I. In a way, I'm also at the moment binge going through David McCullough, and so maybe it strikes me, especially now, like David McCullough really, he knows that period of like 1776 to, well, he did some stuff, you know, other stuff 
later, but that period of 18 through 1776 to say 1915, he knows mm-hmm. super well and mined it for like seven books. And Doctorow kind of did the same thing. He, he kind of took a window in time and really got into it. Um, I haven't read the most recent book that came out a couple years ago, or maybe it was last year, Andrew's Brain, um, which uh, I'm kind of glad now I have one more new one to get to for me. Um, so E.L. Doctorow um, passed away this year at the uh, age of 84. Go out and read some Doctorow if you haven't. I think you'll enjoy it. Okay, let's do our first sponsor. Well, let's say you wanted to uh, start an internet project on these here intertubes. You know, maybe you wanted a, a blog. Uh, maybe uh, you want to start a small business. Uh, maybe you want to take some pictures. Maybe maybe you don't want to give Facebook all of the pictures of your family. You oh, know, or, yes. or you know, mm-hmm. like let's say you got a new kid or something like that, and you'd like some place where you can post pictures for your friends and families to to look at the pictures. You know, because the web is awesome in that way. Um, but you don't want them, say, showing up. In, you know, in entrusting Facebook with those things. You can have control over them. Also, you don't have this algorithm problem with Facebook, right, where, like, they only show certain things to certain people. Here, if you have your own website, you know, you can control which gets shown um, to whom and how often. So, but where do you go? And the, the, the problem that Squarespace, our longtime sponsor, is trying to solve and is solving is what do you do if you're not an expert at computers, but you know a little bit of what you're doing, um, and how do you put something online that's not a a terrible mess, b you got to hire a designer and a web host and all that stuff, or free and so stripped down and full function and they sort of control the experience and they 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 limit what you can do. Well, Squarespace says here's what you do: you you pay a little bit, you know, eight dollars a month basically, and you will get a full featured website builder that has pre-built templates that make it easy to build a beautiful looking website that looks great on any kind of device that really could reasonably access it. I guess if you have an old Commodore 64 that someone has hacked up to sort of access the web, probably not going to work on that. But anything a reasonable person we're going to use from the last, you know, you know, several years is going to look great from a phone to a tablet to a laptop to a desktop. So you go squarespace.com. And, and, and the, the nice thing about it is like the templates look great right out of the bat. They have a certain templates based on like a different kind of project you might want to use. You don't have to, you know, you don't have to pick that. So they have things for fo- uh, galleries or portfolios or businesses, but you can just see what looks right there, and then they the the templates when you download them to start building your website, the the information and data that they're using in their example is right there, so that you can see how it looks on the website as you're moving pieces around. So even before you have to start entering your own stuff, you can use their pre-filled um, information and content to just sort of move things around and see how it works. And nice, very nice to see that it updates as you're working on it. Um, makes for a really great experience. I think, I think this is also something that maybe, you know, one thing is you may not have a reason to use this right now, but also you might, I'm imagining someone sometime somewhere in your life is like thinking about doing something on the web. And this is a really good thing. It's like, it's especially good for like school projects or like local community organizations mm-hmm. um, where you can give them a full featured all-in-one solution. Go to squarespace.com, enter offer code riot at checkout and you'll get 10% off. Thanks so much to Squarespace for sponsoring the show. We asked, you know, last year we did, um, some call out. So if people have built stuff with Squarespace, uh, send it to us and we'll talk about it on the show. Let's, let's do that again. So if you've built something with Squarespace, you know someone who's built something with Squarespace, shoot us an email at podcast at bookriot.com. We'll take a look at it and talk about it on the show um, a little bit later. All right. 
All right. Well, we've got a bunch of numbers. It's a no, it's, we haven't had numbers in a I feel like we've been on a numbers drought. Yeah, it has been a bit of a numbers drought. You know, we're in the middle of the year. Yeah. Things are, and it's the middle of summer and publishing is slow because everybody's just working for their summer Fridays. Um, I'm already starting to look forward to January when we get all of the full 2015 in review stats, uh, mainly because I'm still looking forward to winning our bet about oh, Gray. Oh, Gray are you nervous now? You have to be a little bit nervous. Come on, tell I'm, me you're not a little bit nervous. I'm a little bit nervous, but not enough nervous for you to take any delight in. Oh, that's enough. That's enough. That's all I needed. <laughs> just a little bit? Just a little bit. Uh, a couple, 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 couple things, just before you get into this numbers. Um, I, I don't know that I'm going to win this best, but this might be my only moment to sort of see a little sunshine in my yeah, possibilities. Yeah, just take a moment. You need to gloat for yeah. a second. I, I understand. So um, a, a birdie told me something. A birdie that works at a, a big chain bookstore somewhere in America that we all mm. maybe have shopped at before um, said that their local store... Uh, over the first seven days, uh, Ghost of the Watchmen straight up outsold Gray in the store. So that's one data mm-hmm. point. That's one data point. Well, yeah, I mean, we knew already that Ghost of Watchmen pre-orders yep. um, were the largest print pre-orders, and Gray was the largest ebook pre-order. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, so and and Ghost of the Watchmen is at the top of the Kindle uh, leaderboard right now. Again, it has a couple weeks. You know, Gray the tail has 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 gone down a little bit, but. Uh, you know, we'll see. I mean, here's I don't my know. anecdata. I was traveling. Uh, no, your anecdata is invalid. Only my anecdata. <laughs> no, bro. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's anecdata all around. <laughs> uh, I went to the Great North to see um, some of our friends at publishing houses in Canada earlier this week, and I was looking around as I do at what people were reading in the airport, and I only saw one person reading Ghost a Watchman, but I saw four people reading Gray. Well, that's see that international is a problem for. Uh... For, well, okay, ghost, so I was in LaGuardia, and then I was in Toronto. But yeah, LaGuardia you know, right. counts. Yeah, that counts. Yeah, and yeah, the Richmond counts. Airport, uh, as as tiny and ineffectual as the Richmond Airport oh, is. Oh, so cute. Uh, it's, real, it's real cute. Um, uh, but so there's my, there, we, that's our anecdata moment. You want to talk real data? Yeah, data, let's, data? Let's, let's talk real data. So I think we've talked about studies like this first one on the show before that correlates the number of books in a kid's household as they're growing up with their future educational attainment, right? Have we talked about this before? Yes. On the yeah, show. Um, and our standard response is, well, that might be more correlation than causality because people, you know, families who have a lot of books in the house are probably more likely to have had high educational attainment and or higher socioeconomic status because if you can mm-hmm. afford a bunch of books. Confounding factors. Confounding factors. So this study that uh, was on LiveScience.com and... Um, there's a new survey, and this is people in 27 countries, which is the biggest study I've heard of of this kind. And their sample size is 73,249 people. Yeah. That is a big sample size. So it shows that having a 500-book library boosted a child's expected education by 3.2 years on average. So that's just zero, you know, less than 500, more than 500. Yeah, they were able to isolate that the number of books variable and show that that was the thing causing the variance or that was the most correlated to the variance in, in educational attainment. I was thinking like, I am not even sure there are 500 books in my house. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, Because I read so much digitally and I've gotten rid of, Mm. uh, you know, so many of the print books that I had been holding on to, but then I just decided to shed some uh, literary Wait, 500 is... It's that's a lot. A, you know, that that's, I hadn't thought lot. about... I mean, I, I thought about it as being a lot, but I didn't even consider... 
I guess the, do kids' books count? Because my oh, our kids hmm. have a bunch of books, and you know they're kind of small. Yeah. So I, I don't know. That's not clear here, right? It's really interesting. But I'll, here's the other the other end of it. They found that having as few as twenty books in the, mm-hmm. the home still has a significant impact on propelling a child to a higher level of education. And then the more books you add, the greater the benefit. No. Um, in China, having 500, 500 or more books in the home uh, was led to six point six years wow. further wow. in the education. That's a huge- Huge difference. Here in the U.S., it was 2.4 years. Uh, and man, so it's so interesting. I, when I worked for Barnes & Noble, we did book drives for uh, local and national charities at the holidays where like, mm-hmm. um, if you were checking out at the cash register, we would say, would you also like to buy a book to donate to First Book or, or mm-hmm. whatever? Um, and they would provide us with lots of stats to read over the intercom in the stores, you know, to make people more interested in donating books. And one of them was something about this, that we know that kids who grow up in a house that has books, even just a few books, um, are more likely uh, to go further with their education. And and of course, now we know all of the things that education is correlated to yeah. with, uh, with careers and with income later on and moving up the socioeconomic ladder. Books, put books in your house, I guess. And if you are able to, please donate books to people who are not able to purchase books for their own homes. It matters. The key paragraph here for me is a comparison. A child born to a family that had only one book, but was otherwise average in parents' education, father's occupation, GDP, and similar variables would expect Mm -hmm. to get 9.4 years of education themselves. Another person from an otherwise identical family with 500 books would expect to get 12.6 years of education, the results showed. So that's that 3.2 years. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's the one we've always sort of wondered about the correlations like, well, if you have a lot of books, that means your, your family maybe is better educated. But this is you're taking a, a relatively similar cohort and, adjust, you know, the, what you're looking at is the number of books. And again, I think it's still it just I mean, I guess it could be that if you took a, a, a household with kids in it that didn't have many books and just sort of trucked in 500 books one day and dropped them in, would it make that much of a difference? Or is that 500 books in the household a sign of something else going on in the household? Yeah, I mean, that's, I would that's, think, the, that's the question, right? Yeah, I would think it, I mean, it's all guesses, but right. I would think it has to be connected to what those books are doing in that the That the parents household. have bought them, that their right, family that, is supported, that, you know, right, that they have a bookstore see, close by or a library or something. And that you see the parents reading, maybe the parents are talking about the things that they've read. They're, maybe they're reading to kids at bedtime having books in the house would be related to being more likely to read to your children. And we know that reading to kids when they're little, or that just the presence of books in your house makes it when you go to school, you're not like, what the hell is this thing? Like you're used to it and part of your life and normal and comfortable with books and reading. Maybe you start reading earlier and therefore you get some, um, you know, positive feedback in school because you're a good Mm -hmm. reader. And, you know, we all know that positive feedback in school leads to people being more interested. So again, I, I don't, I still don't think we get the answer to if you just sort of sent families 500 books. Right. Is it just the mere And let the education roll yeah, in. Right. Know, I, I, but um, this does add that little piece that you and I have both wondered mm-hmm. about aloud. So I thought it was worth mentioning here. Yeah, really interesting. I think we all have the – like everyone who loves books has the sense that books – matter and yeah, make a difference. Right. You know, and they make a difference in our lives. And we see a bunch of editorials every year just about like how everyone loves books. And I think we've even joked about like don't apply to Book Riot with an essay about how great books are. But right. <laughs> like we that's all know. Also, that's like saying, you know what, I also breathe oxygen. You know, <laughs> right. I, I'm a carbon based life form. 
but seeing some numbers that back up the, the yeah. real impact of having books in the home and reading to kids or making access to information more readily available. It's uh, more numbers are better, I think. And it's mm-hmm. nice to it's nice to see that to have some data behind the feelings. Uh, we got some audio book news. So we get we got a little bit of you know we quarterly and half year reports um, from various book related re, uh, information gathering entities, um, and we got a couple of those. The audiobook the audio publisher association. Boy, is anyone happier in publishing than the audio publishers association <laughs> right now? This um, is this number you're about to say is really impressive. Yeah, Rel- uh, especially relative to everything else in publishing. Our friend Rachel Smalter Hall and colleague here at Book Riot found this first, I think, mm-hmm. and uh, the stats are pretty uh, amazing. So. 2014 over 2013, this is reporting on 2014 stats. I don't, I guess it took them six months to put this together. Anyway, <laughs> up, 20, up 20% uh, year over year. 20%? And, which for, for book, anything that's, any industry that's really pretty good. Um, the, the other striking thing that uh, Rachel pointed out that's in this report is the, the sheer number of audiobooks produced per year. In 2010, the number of audiobooks produced was 6,200. In 2014, we, we quoted the number, more than quoted the number to 25,787. Mm-hmm. And you can see a, the big jump. It's 6,200 in 2010, a little over 7,200 in 2011. So a small increase. But then between 2011 and 2012, it went from 7,200 What the hell happened in 2011? Oh, book rights Audible. <laughs> I guess right, Audible and iPhones guess, got I really good. Well, but we've had, we've had, I mean, we've had iPhones in 2010, in 2011. Mm-hmm, but maybe that was like the, I'm just guessing. Like I, a big it's got to be something. Explosion. I don't know. I got my first smartphone in, tour, I guess it was 2010, 2010. Mm, I guess, yeah. maybe. Maybe. Um, and then from 1600 to 20, almost 2400 in 2013. And then it was a small jump between 2013 yeah. and 2014. But that like 2011 to 2013 is, that's a big, big yeah, increase. Yeah, that 2011 to 2012, that, that one year, it more than doubled in a year mm-hmm. um, and made for a huge sense. Uh, adult titles continue to account for 87% of sales, which is super interesting, right? Yeah, like it is. Especially as we know that young adult titles are like going gangbusters on the digital and print side hasn't yet caught up for the audiobook side for whatever reason. So if I'm an audiobook publisher, I kind of like that because I got some room. I got some upside there. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see. Let's see. 77.4% of audio being fiction. Okay. Um, let's see. Unabridged format continues to dominate with 91% of audiobooks. Uh, I, I wonder who reads abridged. I I actually bought an abridged version of a book the other day, and it made me so mad. It was like at a vending machine when you actually didn't accidentally hit <laughs> Diet Mountain Dew. And you're like, no! no! What well, is going on? Well, if it was on Audible, you can return it. Well, that's true. That's true. Um, so anyway. Th- th- but you it's know, still sad. It's big. A uh, 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 big, especially as we transition to our sort of next story, which is that for the first quarter of 2015, um, the American Associated Publishers reported that book sales in total are down 6.5%. 
in quarter one over the similar quarter in 2014. And this is tied to, we were talking a few weeks ago about numbers and the most popular titles of the year or the most popular categories of the year. And I think this has to be just deeply connected to there's not a new John Green book this year. Uh, The Paper Towns movie just came out. So, or is premiering. I saw stuff about it on Twitter last night. Uh, So those book sales are slow. There's not a new Hunger Games Mm -hmm. book. There's not a new Veronica Roth movie right now. Yeah, those movies both the the new Hunger Games and the new uh, uh, well no I guess the new Veronica Roth movie comes out next year there really weren't any like major major books in the first half of 2015 I think we're having an incredible year for books but the the really big stuff is coming this fall Mm -hmm. a couple side notes about that we talked about this last time with the the first half of the year stats we did a little bit earlier and we were talking about strength in nonfiction. I don't know if mm-hmm. you remember that. And we're like, what the heck happened? Also another little birdie. And I don't know if I can say the name, so I won't, um, you know who you are. And if I can say your name, I'll give you credit next time. Did some, um, has access to some sales numbers that Ooh. most mortals don't have access to. And the Wright brothers by, uh, Dave McCullough, which I listened to recently. And also, um, Eric Larson's dead wake about the seeking Lusitania. Each of those sold in excess of a quarter million copies. So I think that could account for some of that nonfiction strength we saw. Those are big numbers for nonfiction it's titles. It's the dad books. Dad reads, baby. And I am here we for get, that. That's what we're going to register at Squarespace this week. Oh, dadreads.net. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, that's a good idea. That's so that, way more appealing than J.K. Rowling Jello wrestling or whatever you came <laughs> no, up with last uh, year. Jumpa Lahiri eating burritos. <laughs> uh, anyway, um, not that I remember uh, or think about it at all. Um, so I you think, just never, you never just sit around and think about Jim Bolahiri eating a burrito. Yeah, sometimes it's chalupas. Uh, oh, you know, you, you, know, you got to switch I it see. up a little bit. She uh, needs to do a Chipotle cup. Get on that, Jonathan <laughs> yes, Saffron Four. Seriously. Um, anyway, where were we talking about? Now I'm distracted. <laughs> oh, so a nonfiction sales down. The Wright Brothers. The dad Wright reads. Brothers. Dad reads. I'm old. Oh yes, I'm old. Uh, speaking of being old, um, so we've got uh, Ghost of a Watchman coming out. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that's released in the second half. We've got most so of the gray, gray sales will happen mm-hmm. in the back half of this year. So I think we can expect, you know, the year to be a pretty good one. There's a new Jonathan Franzen in the fall, which is guaranteed to sell. Yeah, I wonder how much that, I wonder how many that's really going to sell. Is that going to sell a million copies? Oh, I don't know. I'm going to be, I will be watching that with great interest. Yeah, that's one. We um, could add that variable to our bet. Where is no, purity? No, no, you're no. trying to hedge your bet. No, come on. I, I'm not trying to hedge anything. Shinsuke. I'm interested in yeah. what happens if you add Jonathan Franzen to Harper Lee versus E.L. <laughs> James. You want to do a this parlay? Like, you want to do a parlay with I want to write some headcanon about that. Mm. Um, so anyway, the, the, so not a great start to 2015, but there's reason to be uh, optimistic. And, and then the wave of movies yes. coming out that, you know, spur sales. To a bunch of different things. So, okay. So that, keeping up with that. So that's our, our time in numbers corner. Yeah. I mean, it, also, I mean, to be honest, and this is, this is also an excellent segue if I don't say so much, if I do say so myself, oh, but also bring it, bring it, a, a bring real it. one is that our next sponsor, Random House Audios, I think we've also seen like publishers getting behind audiobooks in a bigger way. And I think Random House, you know, sponsoring this show, sponsoring other shows, we've seen some other companies, you know, getting mm-hmm. into the audiobook distribution space um, has mattered. And, you know, that, they're seeing a, a lot of good uh, responses there. So what is what is Random House Audiobooks do? Well, they've got this awesome website called tryaudiobooks.com, which what it, what it tries to help you do is, you know, as a lot of us are now new to audiobooks and growing and more and more people are listening to audiobooks, we're trying to figure out how to make uh, audiobooks a part of our 
not only reading life, but just sort of our daily lives. And so what they do is they take some of the common, you know, uh, activities or um, events that you do that also is sort of a good opportunity to listen to some audiobooks. You're going on car trips, you're cooking, you're doing some cleaning, you're doing crafting, uh, you're, you're out there, you know, just out there in the world doing stuff. But you could have, you know, headphones in your ears or the radio or stereo on that you've hooked your iPhone or computer up to, and you can listen. So go to tryaudiobooks.com and you can find uh, a bunch of suggestions for multitasking choices for audiobooks plus insert activity here. So yeah, and in the month of July, they're featuring um, giveaways, they're doing some giveaways yeah. of audiobooks to listen to while you cook. Uh, so whether you want to listen to healthy stuff like skinny habits or the good gut, or maybe you want to catch up with Judy Bloom and listen to in the unlikely event, which mm. is her uh, latest adult novel, her first novel for adults in several decades. Uh, or there's kitchens of the great Midwest by J Ryan straddle or straight I'm not sure how you pronounce it. But that's one of the big books of summer, I'm starting to see that everywhere. Mm. Uh, so you could enter to win that or check out the free giveaways they've got at tryaudiobooks.com. I am currently really digging a Random House audiobook. Oh, yes. What is it? Uh, Bob and I are listening to The Martian by Andy Weir, which, you know, everyone loves. And the movie mm -hmm. is coming out this fall with Matt. Oh, that's going to move some units. I didn't even think about that. Oh, right. I didn't. Yeah, that's yeah. definitely going to move some that units. That trailer looks amazing. Anyway. It really does. And I can't imagine anybody's voice as better for the narration of the story than Matt Damon. It's just such a perfect <laughs> casting Because he's, he's, you know, he's a smart guy, but also a bit of a goober, which Mark Watney and The Martian mm -hmm. kind of, he has a kind yeah, of a goober like a, sense of humor. My boyfriend, Robert Downey Jr. would have nah. been a good choice like 10 years ago. Yeah, I don't know. Downey, well, we can, this is, boy, talk about headcanon. Uh, let's, let's <laughs> get away. So you like The Martian. Anyway, audiobook. The Martian is, it's, we've just started it. I read the book when it, uh, before it came out and stayed up like all night long finishing yep, it. I, same. Just, I just loved it. I think that happened to like everybody yes. at Book Riot. There was just this waterfall. It was like a Martian virus. Of, like you were just down for two days with the Martians. <laughs> Someone else would pop up on our internal network the next day and be like, oh, I was up until 3 a.m. <laughs> yeah. It was my turn. It's like, turn. oh, Clint's got it today. He's got the I Martian, the Martian flu. flu. Yeah. Um, but Bob hadn't read it yet. His pile of books is huge. And I was like, well, you've got to read this. We have to put this story in your brain before we go see the movie. And I am not waiting past like the release day to see the movie. Uh, so we're, we've just started listening. We're going on a road trip soon where we'll finish it. It is excellent. The, I just loved the voice of the narrator in the book and getting to hang out and, and actually hear a person read that is really, really fun. Uh, if you're, there's cursing. So I would say if you're going oh. on an adults only road trip, yeah. uh, then that's just fine. But if you have the kids in the car, maybe not for The Martian. Uh, I'm really, really digging it. It's great. The production is wonderful. The story is so compelling. Uh, and I'm just going to have to make him do all the driving so that I can sit and just enjoy <laughs> the story. Because I would be like driving off at the edge of a cliff, so caught up in what's happening. That, that's a super good point. Um, another one that's uh, a, a title you might be interested in that we didn't, I didn't talk about when we were doing the first half of 2015 sets, but the, the big the big blockbuster adult fiction title of 2015 so far is A Girl on the Train by Paula Hawkins. Like, it sold more than mm -hmm. 2 million copies. Um, I'm trying to get back into using the library a little bit more. I, 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 I discovered when reading Go Sit of Watchmen in print that I really do prefer reading fiction in print uh, if I can. So I thought I might, you know, rather than spend 25 bucks on hardbacks for something new release that I want to get a cop with, I go to the library, put some holds on. So I was playing with the Brooklyn Library system. And, you know, one thing you could do is you can see how many titles there are in the system and how many holds there are, which mm -hmm. is sort of an interesting proxy for, you know, buying and demand. And there are more holds on, I'm sorry, 
there's more holds on Ghost of the Watchman, but it's not that many more than Girl on the Train. There's like 400 holes on Ghost of the Watchman, the Harper Lee book, and there was like 290 holds yeah. on, on uh, Girl on a Train. It's the fastest selling adult debut fiction title of all time. Uh, Riverhead's been very good about telling us how well it's selling, but it is interesting. Um, <laughs> it is. It's very suspenseful. I enjoyed I enjoyed the people read. are reading it. Like So that's another one. If you want to get cut up, um, tryoutabooks.com, you, you might uh, find that uh, Girl on the Train is something a lot of people are talking. A lot of celebrities, too. I saw a whole post on like Vogue the other day. It's like, these are all the celebrities reading um, Girl on the Train. Which, yeah, they've done a Riverhead has done a really good of a job, job with the marketing yeah. there. And I, I feel like I realized that that was happening when the book had only been out for a week and a, a friend of mine who has a like his, I think it's his aunt uh, loves to read but you know isn't like in the book world right. she's just a normal person in her 50s she loves to read um, and I will often pass books over to her or send her galleys of stuff after I finished reading them and uh, he was texting me going Francis really wants to know if you have the girl on the train wow. and it was like three days after the book wow. release and I was like what is going on that is crazy <laughs> it is crazy I think that one would be great on audio it's very suspenseful um, the narrator, it, it's a great unreliable narrator setup uh, as well. Uh, are you ready for a jag? I've got a quick jag for you on, related to that. Can we do that? You dig and I zag. Let's do it. Yeah. So, oh, sorry. Thanks you much to trialbooks.com for spon- continuing to sponsoring this show. Go, go find an audiobook there. Um, okay. A couple things just related that popped in my head while we're talking about this. One, girl on the train stuff. I, I haven't talked to anyone else about this. I, no one else has mentioned this that I know of, but the, the ebook for girl on the train is five ninety nine. dollars ah. which for a new release is, is low and, yeah, and for a popular one, it's for, low from a major publisher. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't, I don't know if that's part of their marketing strategy, like make it low and easy to buy, uh, on, on, and on how the long, I wonder how long it's been five ninety. It, it's been like this for a while. Cause okay. like I do the daily deal right, thing. Right. right. And I keep almost putting it on there. Like here's a new release title. It's like, it's not quite cheap enough to call it a deal. Right. Mm-hmm. And as far as I know, it's not like marked down from like the normal price of nine ninety nine or twelve ninety nine or something like that. It's been like that for a while. Um, the other one that's been like that is the buried giant by Ishiguro, which is a, you know, a relatively new title. That's not, so it's in this weird, like middle ground of not full price, nine 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 or above, but it's also not discounted like one ninety nine so or two ninety nine. It's so much better than like the thirteen ninety nine for new type for new yeah. uh, frontlist titles from major publishers that we see so often. So I don't know if that's I don't know. I, it would I'd love have to know. To be right, it's got to be part of their strategy of like they want people to buy it on an ebook and they'll maybe will drive. Tr- print sales or maybe they just will do enough volume in digital that they've got a hit on their hands or they knew mm-hmm. they thought they were going to have a hit on their hands so let's let's make it sort of well, super impulse buy worthy. It's getting enough continued press like you were saying there the Riverhead is really great at Instagram. I've seen girl on the train yeah. all over their Instagram. There's all this stuff with celebrities reading it. It's been out for months and it's still popping up in like the books coverage in People magazine yeah. and that kind of thing. Yeah. So I bet they're counting on people, you know, using mobile technology. You're on your phone, you see a mention of this book, you go search for it on Amazon and it's five ninety nine, and that's an easy Bang. impulse buy. Right. I guess if you're, yeah, if you're really trying to do like big publicity coverage, make it easy to buy, like get the friction all the way down to, to a point. You know, of course, ninety nine cents would have even less friction, but you know, get it down where it's like, oh, it's five bucks, it's right. six bucks. Um, make it so that that's that's one jag. Also, and I think we've talked about this before on Twitter, and people sort of like casually har 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 mentioned this stuff before, but I, I don't know what to do with this. Girl with the Dragon Tattoo is a huge seller. Gone Girl is a huge seller. Girl on the Train is a huge... Do you see what I'm getting at here? Is, it, is that really just random? 
Like, what is that? I think it's that there are a million books with girl in the title. Oh, so you just have a huge data set. So yeah. some of them are going to be hits. Yeah, and it's, there no, are just okay. more books with girl and woman and daughter and wife in the title. And none of them are girls. I mean, that's the other thing, right? They're right. all women, which is weird. Anyway, I, 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 I mean... I just wonder if, like, Girl on the Train, does it does it get any extra juice from, like, people knowing that Gone Girl and Girl with a Dragon Tattoo were big hits? Like, it well, feels like a hit? I don't well, know. Well, Girl on the Train, one of the, like, major blurbs is that this is for fans of Gone Girl. Because for people who like Girl in the title. Well, yes. Uh, well, there's, like, a well, big... suspense. Yeah, and there's yeah. a twist. I don't even want to... I'm not going to... Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I don't yeah, want to yeah, spoiler yeah. it because the, the info in the blurb for Girl... Like, if you're interested in Girl on the Train, don't read synopses of it mm. because... I haven't read it yet. It's on my atonal hold of the library i'm gonna be waiting yeah 12 don't years read the blurbs it. because i ended up being really mad at the blurbs that it ruined mm. what would have been a surprise in the story yeah so, um, so don't anyway. don't do that um, those are my those are my jeff's random thoughts I, yeah on i would guess train. i mean and maybe like maybe there's something to that that because a couple years ago it was like tiger everything and wife <laughs> and daughter yeah everything and publishing does like to go on little trend jags in the way that books are titled and in subject matter and stuff so maybe there's something to like oh people will buy books with girl. I do think that publishers are pretty sure that people will buy books with girl faster than they'll buy books with woman. Like woman even though all the of train. these should say woman. Mm. Like these are all adult female characters. These are women. They're not girls. Um, well, Gone Girl, that one, at least it, like the alliteration is awesome. That one, yeah. you know, I can sort of Well, understand. and that's like a line in the book. She's like, and you know, there's something about how she's the gone, she is a gone girl or something. Um, yeah, but mm-hmm. it's, there's, there might be something yeah, anyway. There. If you really wanted to engineer a bestseller, you would do like the disappeared girl with the tiger who was the daughter's <laughs> wife. Well, I mean, and, to be honest, like when they came up with the English title for the girl with the dragon tattoo books, like they chose that, right? Because the original <laughs> the original version is men who hate women. Like right. that's the, in the, uh, the Stieg's original uh, Which you title. can sell in the political climate of um, Sweden, but not so much here. Yeah, which is... It's kind of an amazing title. Um, our friend and also colleague Brenna uh, Clark Ray is rereading the girl with the dragon tattoo and was Instagramming and reminding me that the, the interstitial mm-hmm. chapter breaks that are all stats about violence against women, which, you know, it's such a bestseller that that sort of political agenda of the book, I think, got swept under the rug or wherever you put political I agendas would, in yeah, books. Yeah, I'd say here it got, I don't know what they did with it in Sweden, but I would guess that that sweeping of the book's political agenda was intentional here. You know, oh, if they, yeah, if they sure. thought they could sell a book called Men Who Hate Women to Americans... They would. Um, but they should just call it Reddit. Um, yeah. I mean, Girl with the Dragon Tattoo is a great title. I, I think it, it's a it great is. title. It's a fantastic but title. It's, but th- it's there is there, there is a there is an angle. Um, and Larson was writing mm. from a very particular. It is the angle. It's not an it. Yeah. Think, political yeah. perspective. It's not just a, a thriller about a girl who has leather pants and rides a motorcycle. Right. Yeah. yeah. All right. So I'm uh, sorry. Sorry for that. Jack. But I, had <laughs> that to get that out. Jack. I had to get it out there. I, I don't know. You got these I liked things. The jag. They're not really worth a post or anything to write about, but they're just sort of like random thoughts. So if, I we're would not like to do hear, I want to hear from readers. Do you think it's oh, the, yeah. or listeners, do you, do you think people just like these books with girl in the title or do we just have a million of them? And so the sample, yeah, size it could be this weird effect where if a publisher think they've got a hit on their hand, it's like, let's put girl in the title. So there mm-hmm. could be some weird, like, selection bias um, going on there. Okay, well, let's see. What do we want to do we got here? Some, we got some stuff about book banning. Uh, because, do you want to do that? Uh, not really. Well, but let's do, let's do let's at just, least this one about adults are more likely to believe 
there are books that should be banned and then movies, television shows, and video games should be banned. This was a shock to me. I was yes. stunned to see this. So you want to tell me this about is, this? Yeah, this is a story from the Harris Polls. Um, the percentage of Americans who feel that some books should be banned has increased 10 points since 2011. Three in 10 Americans, this is interesting, are more likely to read a book if it's banned. So that goes to you know support that old, nothing can get people to do a thing faster than telling them they can't do the thing theory. Um, but let's see, the 28% believe today that um, there are some books that should be that is That is an unbelievable number. 28%? 28%. That's up versus 18% um, in 2011. So it's 10 actual non-adjusted points, but right. it's almost 50% in yes, sort of relative the, points. And one fourth, about 24% are unsure, which means that the percent of Americans who are convinced that no books should be banned is 48%, fewer than half. We don't even have a majority on this um, believing that no books should be banned. Um, some of the connecting factors, politically speaking, Republicans were nearly twice as likely as Democrats or independents in this sample to believe that there were any books that should be completely banned. Um, and adults who have completed high school or less are more likely than adults who have higher levels of education to believe that there are any books that should be banned. Um, uh, there's are some really interesting... Only 16% of Americans um, believe that there are any movies or TV programs that should be banned completely. And one four say the same about video games. So Americans are now more scared of books than they are video you know, games, which if you the, would have told me that when I was a teenager, I would have thought you were crazy. Yeah, I think especially because of when when you and I were teenagers, like violence in video games was a, oh, a really it was terrible. We were it so was a big thing, out. and it was like just after Tipper Gore got oh, them to gosh. put the um, the ratings on CDs. Yeah, NWA, for right? Content. Wasn't that the right. first one that got? Yeah, I it was, that. A, and like that was a really particular or no, cultural two life crew. Maybe it was Two Life Crew. I remember the case, but anyway, there was there was a really particular cultural yeah. moment where. Like you couldn't turn on the news without seeing something about violence in video games. And we were all convinced that playing violent video games was like was making people more violent rather than something like violent people are more likely what to the like hell is violent going on games here? Or, this is you know I think actually that there's a silver lining to this and that's that we believe that books are more powerful than mm. other forms of media that if a book if books are scarier if the information in books is scarier to us um, or we think that there might be a reason to ban a book more than to ban a movie or a video game it's connected to the effect that we think that media can have on us or on people that we don't want them to have access Right. Chew. Just like we, we control cigarettes, but we don't control uh, chewing gum. Right. Right. Because we, we think there's some there's some mm -hmm. potential danger. That makes sense. Also, I, I also wonder, too, as the, the, the progressive movement along of several angles, and we see this all the time on the site, uh, along um, uh, gay rights, along, uh, you know, racial and diversity topics, uh, along uh, transgender. That's, you know, mm -hmm. that's something that we've been writing about more on the site. I think there's also a sense that books are a beachhead for a lot of that stuff yes. that's going on and that it shows up in schools. I think that's part of it. There are books in schools where there's not really video games. You mm -hmm. know, there's not like shelves of video games or shelves of TV shows in schools. So it feels like, you know, books are on the front lines of how our kids are engaging with the world 
And if they have, if we're worried about the message they have, then we're going to be worried about books. I think that makes mm-hmm. a lot of sense. And to that me. connects to this other story that we can touch on from The Guardian this week that a group of parents in Florida are trying to have two children's books that are set in Afghanistan and Iraq oh, banned God. from the school curriculum. And uh, the books are called Nazarene's Secret School and The Librarian of Basra. And the parents who want these books to be banned are claiming they're inappropriate for students because they promote another religion besides Christianity. Well, that, that's just crazy. I mean, that, that just mm-hmm. can go in the dustbin of stupid. Well, you know, it, it can go in the dustbin yeah. of stupid. When uh, We've encountered, I don't think that we've encountered a, a complaint quite like this on the site, but mm. we have had, uh, we, you know, we, as you were saying, we write a lot about yeah. um, gay and lesbian fiction. We're writing about books for transgender issues. And we've had people say, when are you going to promote some books that are oh, anti-gay? Yeah, you're right, or you're also, right, right. why are you promoting gay things? Like discussing a thing is not the same as promoting it. We often are recommending. But it's interesting to me that the parents in this group in Florida equate the presence of a book set in Iraq or Afghanistan and the presence of Muslim characters as promoting those religions. It's also hugely problematic and right in the dustbin of stupid that parents think that uh, that schools have any responsibility to have books that promote any particular mm-hmm. religion at all. That's not what school curricula <laughs> right. do. Right. Yeah. Uh, mm. But this is that's right into the point that you were talking talking about. We're worried people who want books banned are worried about the ideas that those books expose their children to. We've talked about very recently the teacher in uh, South Carolina who quit his job after complaints from parents about reading a, a book that had gay characters in it that exposed their children to the idea that gay people were people. Uh, mm. And I, th- that we, th- we think that books are powerful. Yeah. And those of us who read and love books know that books are powerful. It's interesting, too, this, this poll also says that 71% of respondents uh, were in favor of a rating system similar to that used for movies and video games, too, um, it, mm. it's not, and it says here, um, should be applied to books. You know, I go back and forth sometimes about a rating system for books. Are, are, what do you think about this idea? I think it would be a thing that might be kind of useful for young adult and middle grade mm. titles, maybe, yeah. um, for parents who are trying to figure out... Uh, is this book appropriate for my kid? Uh, and that was a thing that I, as a bookseller, encountered a lot. And I know that our uh, our contributors who are booksellers encountered a lot and our contributors who are librarians, where people will say, is this book appropriate for a 13-year-old? And the follow-up question that you ask them right back is like, well, I mean, I don't know your 13-year-old yeah. or your values, but you can say, here are some things that are in this book. And so that might be useful to say, you know, there's a sex scene in this book or this book uses the F word. Um, so... You know, if those are things you really don't want your kids to read about, then you can take that information and go. But I think, you know, once we're talking about people who are over the age of 13 or 15, especially when we're talking about adults, like a rating system for content. Yeah, yeah not, you know, you know I, I agree so with you. I think I just there's like some weird edge case. And I, I go back to thinking about myself as a younger reader. You know, I'd go in with a gift card to, uh, boy, was I, you know, it would have been. The Raven, my local independent bookstore, or something oh, like the that. Raven. Yeah, which is still there in Lawrence, Kansas. And I'd get a gift card or I'd get money and I'd have 20 bucks and I'm 10 or 11 and I go into the bookstore. And in theory, I could buy American Psycho, right? Sure. Uh, that's weird. <laughs> I mean, right? <laughs> and I'm not saying it should be illegal or something like that, but like, I mean, I guess it's not, it wouldn't be the bookseller's place to say to my dad, 
necessarily don't buy that. Him, or, right. you know, my dad's down uh, getting the tire change while he dropped me off at the, the library. You know, it's something like that it was not un, unthinkable. Mm-hmm. Um, I've certainly talked to enough people on Reading Lives that they got dropped at the library for a while or were left on one of their stacks alone. I don't know. Like, I, I mean, I, I don't, there's, there should be some way to convey some information to, to parents about buying, helping decide what they're mm-hmm. okay with. That's not banning. Because that's the other question I had about this. Oh, what yeah, do people understand banning to be here? Do, right. they, do they believe it should be banned like it's illegal to sell it or that, you know, it shouldn't be in their kid's school, which is not the same in, as banning yeah, necessarily. Yeah, right. those are not the same thing. And that's, that's interesting uh, and a good question, I think, about like, what was the definition yeah. of banning or did they even define it for people in this study? With respect to ratings, like I think it's useful on, on TV when it flashes up, like there's violent content in this show, there's sexual content in this show, there's nudity or, you know, whatever, there's uh, coarse language. Uh, those, like that kind of label of here is a descriptor of some of the content would be useful so that parents can make a decision about what their kids read. I think we all or most of us have stories about things we read too soon that then you realize yeah. as an adult that you were not ready for that book in some way. Um, one of the one of our contributors had us all do a collaborative post recently that ran on the site where um, a bunch of us wrote about the books that we read too soon. But we all like survive that experience. Yeah. I've asked you that know? question on Reading Lives as well. It's like, you know, did you have a book that you read that kind of shook you up? And a lot of people did, but like, no one's like, you know, I still have night terrors uh, about Stephen King's Tommyknockers. Like, right. you know, like, like you know, know, if you're if you're 13 and you pick up American Psycho, like that's gonna rock your world, mm-hmm. but it's not gonna turn you into a serial killer unless there's something already in you, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. That yeah. is leaning in that way. And, and even if you, there is, right. you probably it's like like it's probably not like the catalyst not. to turn yeah. you into uh, Norman Bates. Yeah, or I don't think that we. I don't want us to be in a place where uh, booksellers or retailers are ever responsible for saying no one under a certain age is allowed to buy this thing. I guess Um, what I'm thinking of, maybe it it has a knock-on effect of, let's say there was, maybe there's just even one rating system. Like, you know, kind of like the, the, I always think of the dividing line as sort of PG-13, right? Mm -hmm. If something's PG-13, then, well, you know, we kind of understand what that is. And then R is like a little worse. It's weird. But anyway, like if we just had sort of like a PG-13 stamp for books, right? Like, or or some equivalent, not not Mm -hmm. even use that, but like, you know, there's some things in here that, you know, border on more mature subject matter. Not saying it's good, not saying it's bad, but it's a quick way. It's kind of like reading the ingredients on the back, you know, the, the health information mm-hmm. on the back of your yeah, cereal. Yeah. It's like you're not saying it's good or bad, but you should know that this is what you're getting into and it's up to you to decide. And maybe that would calm down some of these 28% of people that think there are some books that should be banned. Like, oh, at least there is some, you know, uh, control that can be ex- exerted on the, the the purchasers or consumers part. And you're just sort of not subject to, you know, whatever is going to be in the book. Cause like, isn't it weird? I was thinking about this too. When you, when you put this in the show notes, like, I guess I just assume most adult fiction is R rated. Mm. Don't you? Yeah. Or, or that it has the potential to right, be. Yeah. Or it might as well be, you, you go right, in assuming like, you're going to get R rated. If you don't, well, you didn't, but like you're, right, you're prepared you're, for it to be R rated. Right. If you're reading a book that's written for adults, you, I don't think can be surprised that there are curse words, that there's sex, that someone has an affair, that a that a character yeah. makes a an, a potentially immoral someone gets murdered decision. Right, someone gets murdered. It's it, that's you know content content for adults can range to any of those things, um, but 
but people do tell us that they were surprised when they picked up a novel that uh, that they read that everyone loved and they found out that it had so much like so many uses of the F bomb yeah, or so much sex or, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. or whatever. I don't know. Like I'm I feel like I am as a person, I'm a really poor barometer for these things because like it's really difficult to offend me and and anything in fiction, I'll just go with it. Like when I'm stuck in a story, I just kind of go with whatever. And I'm like, OK, that's the thing that's happening now. You well, know? I mean, speaking of Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, I mean, again, if you haven't read it, there are some scenes in there I was like, oh, I wasn't quite ready for this. But yeah. I also wasn't like, I've been sold a bill of goods. I can't believe this isn't PG. Like, right. you kind of know that you're opening yourself when you're picking up an adult title that, you know, most things are kind of on the board. And if they're shocking, you probably know it's something like Tampa by Alyssa Nutting mm-hmm. or Lolita, right. something where the extra shocking bit of it is, you know, right. communicated like to you in some way. Especially if you read a lot of, like literary fiction these days, which is, which tends to go into, you know, being about like the complexities of adult life and the ways that people are, are broken or trying to be unbroken or whatever. Like you're, you know, you can't be shocked that like a character's having an affair in a literary novel. Like, of course, all the characters are having all the affairs in all the literary fiction these days, because that's an interesting question. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And I guess the other thing (laughs) that's weird is like, for movies especially, like the thing that will get you the artist, the R rating the fastest is like nudity, right? Yeah. And there's not really nudity in books. Like there's sex, but it's like, like there's not like nudity in the same way where it's like, eh, there's naked people on the screen. Like, and that people, people are weirdly uh, sensitive to that. Whereas right, you can something... get your head cut off in the Avengers and it's PG-13, but you show some uh, male mm-hmm. genitalia and it's like, oh my God, this should be triple X all of well, a sudden. I think we have a sense that like that reading erotica is yeah. different than is different than viewing pornography. Like, uh, yeah, that's we, interesting. You, you do have to be 18 to buy like Playboy. Yep. Uh, but you don't have to be 18 yeah, that's interesting too. to buy like the Tiffany Rice novels that I love, yeah. um, mm-hmm. which, you know, that's, it, it, it's interesting. Like something about being able to see it in your own head versus actually seeing something on a page. Um, we, we talked at some point also about graphic novels oh, that yeah. have like some, oh, and we were talking about um, Alison Bechdel and how there are like sort of sex scenes in Fun Home. You see the character uh, in bed with her partner, but it's like... The wording is not a like an erotica description of what's happening there, but you see a drawn picture of two women in bed together and people, it seems to me some people struggle with that. Like, how do you control for an image that someone is seeing that's not a photograph, but is an image rather than just words on a page? Is there some difference? I don't, I don't know. It's a fascinating question. Yeah, it's a fascinating question. And it's just interesting that maybe over time, the lack uh, or our resistance to putting ratings on books has had this ancillary effect of people being more scared of them because they're basically black boxes that you don't know what's in them until you open them or, mm-hmm. or the, that's how they're feeling about it with their kids, especially it seems to me. Okay. We, you know, we better, we, we're, we, we're, we, gotta, we gotta move along. We've um, got a motor script. Uh, Let's do script. Yes. So Scribd, our last uh, sponsor, you want to, you want to start? You sure, want me to start? Yeah, you start. You start. I got yes. some stuff to say about it. You go Scribd's first. a subscription book service that gives you unlimited access to a library of more than half a million eBooks, audiobooks, and they've got comics. Mm. Uh, we, love Scribd. We love these subscription models. And here's why. You pay a flat fee per month. Uh, for Scribd, it's $8.99, but you can get your first month free by going to Scribd.com slash Book Riot. You can read whatever you want and however much of it you want. And this makes it 
low risk, basically mm-hmm. no risk to try something new. We talk a lot about diversifying your reading in um, in many different senses of diversifying. If you want to branch out and read a genre that you haven't read much of, if you want to try an author that you've been hearing about, but you're not sure you're going to like the book, if you just want to check out that book that was really big last year and is in paperback now, and maybe you're thinking about it for your book club, or you just missed the train the first time around, you can do that with Scribd. They have books from major houses, HarperCollins, Simon & Schuster. Houghton Mifflin Harcourt, small presses like McSweeney's and Counterpoint and Tin House. Their audiobooks include some Penguin Random House audiobooks, which is you know great as well since we were talking mm. about Random House audio uh, up earlier in the show. There's a- another way to access those things. You can give it a shot. You you know read 50 pages, listen to the first hour of the audiobook. Try some digital comics. See if it's your flavor. If it is, keep going. If it's not, you can just stop reading and pick something else from Scribd and it costs you nothing to make that decision. You haven't, you know, you don't have sunk cost in that you've bought the book and now you feel compelled to finish reading it or sad that you wasted your money on something that you weren't going to enjoy. Scribd also makes it really easy to find the books that you're going to love. As you read, you get to rate things and they will tailor, the the algorithm will tailor recommendations based on what you love and what you don't love. Uh, So they're paying attention to that over on uh, the All the Books podcast. Liberty said something like, if you, you know, if you read a bunch of books with water skiing raccoons and you don't like those, then they won't give you any more books about water skiing raccoons, but maybe they'll give you some books about like beavers and hot air balloons. I'm in. Uh, I'm in. Is that Wind of the Willows? Wind of the Willows? Is that what she's talking about? Uh, Beavers and hot air balloons? I don't know. know. She's Liberty, so I just go with it. Uh, But they have hundreds also of collections that are curated by their teams of editors. So you can look at these curated lists and get some recommendations as well. I know, Jeff, that you discovered a curated list this morning. Yeah, you know, one thing we talk about on the show is, you know, increasing diversity uh, of authors um, in the publishing industry and just in our own reading in general. And Scribd, we didn't know about this, so good good on them. um, they have they also uh, they have comics and graphic novels, and they have a whole section under heroes of color. So if you're looking for comics and graphic novels um, with uh, protagonists of color, they've got them all laid out for you. And one that Rebecca and I were just geeking out about before the show as we were looking is there's a there's a comic of Zorro written by Isabel Allende on there, which I had just- never heard of. And where have you all been not telling us uh, yeah, that this is a we, thing The internet in the has failed us. Um, you all are terrible. But uh, <laughs> I'm going to be checking that out. Also, uh, Girl on the Train is available in audiobook on Scribd. Mm-hmm. You can also uh, read – You can I, listen. You can listen to that. Uh, bring, up, bring Up the Bodies by uh, Hilary Mantel, um, which I read a couple years ago but really enjoyed. Um, the sequel to her, her award-winning Awesome Wolf Hall, which I actually think I liked a little better than Wolf Hall, but whatever. They're both great. Is also available there. Lots of stuff, but those are a few picks from me. Yeah, you can listen to ta Coates' new book, Between yes. the World and Me, which uh, we've been talking about on all of our podcasts and all over the site. And the audiobook of that is supposed to be wonderful. My favorite comic, Lumberjanes, is available on Scribd. My favorite short story collection uh, ever is there. When you go to scribd.com slash book riot, you're going to see a curated list of 15 of our favorites yep. that are available there. So that'll get you started. If you're like, what would Jeff and Rebecca read on Scribd? It's right there. Right uh, there. You, you can check it out. And at Scribd. 
scribbed.com slash book riot. You'll get 30 days, a 30 day free trial. After that, it's just $8.99 a month. Let us know if you try it out. Let us know if you need recommendations. We use the service. We're happy to you know point you in the right direction. And if you read or listen to something great, please let us yeah, know. Right. A uh, script we'll, that we haven't we talked about, especially well. we can let other people know about it and uh, they can have a good time. So All right. Thanks again to Scribd for sponsoring. We're always happy to have them on the show. Jeff, do you want to hear about new books? I do. It's in the middle of summer, so it's getting tough. So you got something. Yeah, this is, it's All a right. slower week for books. This mid-July yep. period is definitely yeah, the quietest. Into August. Oh, really? For it's quieter than August, do you think? I, yeah, there is, yeah, it is quieter. Mm, um, August 4th and August 11th have tons of new books. Oh, interesting. Um, which is interesting, uh, but I'm really paying attention to how this cycle works now that, we do it. <laughs> now that I'm talking about new releases every week on all the books with Liberty. Uh, so out this week, I haven't read this one yet. I think you and I are both really interested. Uh, a Cure for Suicide, a new uh, novel by Jesse Ball. Uh, one of our contributors, Valerie Michael, is reading this right now, and she tweeted that it's fascinatingly bizarre, which seems right on brand for Jesse Ball. Uh, it's uh, This is a novel about a man starting over at the most basic level and the strange woman who insinuates herself into his life and memory. Uh, I typically try to like paraphrase the synopses of books that we're talking about in this segment that I haven't read yet, but I couldn't figure out how to, <laughs> I could not figure out how to do that here and still convey it because like half of this description is stuff that I don't really know what it means. So um, here's what it says about the book. A man and a woman have moved into a small house in a small village. The woman is an examiner and the man is her claimant. The examiner is both doctor and guide. She's charged with teaching the claimant a series of simple functions. This is a chair. This is a fork. This is how you meet people. She makes notes in her journal about his progress. He's showing improvement, yet his dreams are troubling. One day, the examiner brings the claimant to a party where he meets Hilda, a charismatic but volatile woman whose surprising assertions throw everything the claimant has learned into question. What is this village? Why is he here? And who is Hilda? This is a novel of love, illness, despair, and betrayal. And uh, Jesse Ball is certainly one of our most audacious and original uh, novelists. And he's one of the uh, best young writers, I think. Yeah, he's great. I, I'm a fan. I'm a fan. He does weird and unsettling so well. <laughs> And uh, so that's A Cure for Suicide. It's out in hardcover this week. Uh, as Valerie says, it's fascinatingly bizarre. So if that rings your bells, uh, you know to go there. My favorite book from last year, The Land of Love and Drowning by Tiffany Yannick is out in paperback this week. Ah, uh, yes. Cool. It's so great. If you need a book to take on vacation or you're looking for a book club book or just a really wonderful book, Land of Love and Drowning is it. Uh, this is set in the Virgin Islands at Transfer Day, or it begins at Transfer Day, which is when the Virgin Islands transferred an ownership from the British to being owned by the United States. It's about two sisters who become orphans after their parents drown. And they discover that they have a half brother they never knew about because their dad had some secrets. Uh, before they find out that he is a half brother, one of the sisters maybe gets involved with the brother. Uh, and so there's some interesting stuff about family and secrets and sex and mythology. Uh, her writing is wholly original, but contains you know, some magic realism, 
uh, feelings that reminded me of uh, of both Toni Morrison and of um, Gabrielle Garcia Marquez. And I think you'll see that in descriptions of the book elsewhere online. The writing has this really beautiful rhythm and flow to it. I just felt like I was right there uh, in the islands. And the characters then uh, spend some time in the United States. We get to see their lives over several decades. And so it's a, it's a look at a part of the world and a, at a very specific point in history, but also some bigger universal themes. And I just thought it was a, a really remarkable novel, but also especially remarkable for being someone's first book. Uh, so it's Land of Love and Drowning by Tiffany Yannick. Those are just a couple new books. That's our show. That's our show this week. As always, you can send us an email at podcast at bookwright.com if you've got, you know, if you want to tell us about something you like on Scribd, you've got, you know, any other feedback you want to give us, uh, we'd love to hear it. If you think the girl titling tattoo, uh, the, the girl titling... The girl with the tiger tattoo. The, the, the girl with the girl in her book title um, titling thing is real or just a secondary effect. Uh, let us know what your opinion is on that. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter. I'm at the Jeff O'Neill O-N-E-L. She's at Rebecca Shinsky, S-C-H-I-N-S-K-Y. You can find show notes for this in all previous episodes of the Book Riot podcast at bookriot.com slash podcast. Uh, you're out next week. I'm out next week. You're off uh, camping or something. I'm lake housing. Lake housing. With a bunch of, with a bunch of relatives. All so right. Amanda, who has been camping all week this week, will be back here uh, in the chair with you. All right. Oh, oh, also, if you've got a Squarespace project you know about that you or someone else, you you, you worked on a Squarespace project, we'd like to know that. Uh, podcast oh. at bookwright.com. And you can still, for a few more days through July 31st, get $20 oh, off yes. your, book, your Book Riot Live registration with the code WHEELHOUSE. Um, we added a bunch of great new speakers this week, including Alicia Rye, who writes awesome contemporary and historical uh, romance and erotica. Lucy Nisley, uh, who's who I think is most famous for Relish, which is a graphic novel, a graphic memoir about food uh, and a few other great folks. So check out bookriotlive.com for all of the information and use the code wheelhouse to save 20 bucks. Come hang out with us in New York on November 7th and 8th. That's wheelhouse one word. And uh, we'll yes. talk to you guys next time. Have a good one.